Fluvium is conceptualized to cater to the daring, young, rebellious, and free-spirited individuals in the Asia-Pacific region. The intersection of combat sports, board sports, art, and music lies in a culture that is unique, free-spirited, and uplifting. The products and apparel which cater to the fight, skate, and surf market are designed and crafted to symbolize simplicity and creativity. Two seemingly disparate styles to produce comfort-oriented stylistic products. Since you guys have been stuck at home, we've partnered with Fluvium to get you guys a 10% discount on mats to facilitate and help you to continue training at home. Use coupon code LEVERAGE10, that's leverage spelled out, 1-0 on checkout to get your discount. Our guest is Professor Brian Glick, a third-degree Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt under John Danaher and Henzo Gracie, owner of Brooklyn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, training partner to the former death squad at the Henzo Gracie Academy in New York. Professor, how are you? Glad to have you on our show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm doing great. It kind of took us a little while to get this to happen. I mean, it was just scheduling conflict. You were busy, then our team was busy, and uh, we just had to make this happen and um, it's like it, it's a huge honor to have somebody of your repute and your standing like for us to be able to just pick your brain it's it's a real like treat for us um, well thank you you know it's a, it's a pleasure for me to be able to do this you know we were talking about the time difference so just just being able to connect like this around the world is I mean that it's amazing and then to be able to have a platform like you know, jujitsu to bring us to this is amazing. And I'm, I'm uh, really grateful. I'm grateful to you guys too. So thank you. So uh, when did you start, uh, when did you get into jujitsu and martial arts specifically jujitsu? Like? Yeah. So I never really did. I wasn't very athletic um, throughout high school or even like when I was in, in college, I wasn't really doing very much physical activity at all. Uh, I wasn't running. I wasn't really, it just wasn't interesting to me. You know, I didn't really have any reason. I felt like I didn't have any reason to do it. I had other interests. And so um, it wasn't until right around the year 2000 that I was in, like motivated to do something. And it really came out of a feeling that I, I, I had been living in New York City for uh, five or six years already. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually longer than that, I guess, because I had been here for, uh, yeah, probably like seven or eight years. And, you know, New York is a very, can be a, a, a kind of crazy place to be. There's a lot of people packed together. Yeah. Um, you see and meet all different sorts of people. And, you know, the city has its own reputation. You know, in the 90s, it was a much, much rough, rougher place than it is now. Um, so I started to feel after, you know, after I had gotten out of college and I was kind of like in the, in the regular world that it would be a good idea for me to have some kind of um, self-defense skills. And I think that a lot of people, when they first come to the martial arts, they're drawn to it. You know, now it's a little different because there's a lot of attention on UFC and there's much more attention to jujitsu and grappling in general. So there's a greater awareness of that. But I also, I still think for most people, there's like a sense of self-defense 
an interest in self-defense and feeling like you can handle and manage yourself and have the confidence to do that, that brings a lot of people into the martial arts and into jujitsu. So I was no different. And I happened to meet a fellow who had been a longtime martial arts practitioner. He, would, he had been a traditional martial arts practitioner for a very long time. He was, had done karate. He had done uh, Muay Thai. Um, he had done some Kali and Eskrima. And he was just getting into yeah, this yeah. like new thing. Yeah, like this new thing right. that people were doing out in California, um, the ground fighting. And right. when he, so when I met him, you know, um, it was just a very casual conversation. And we were starting to talk a little bit about uh, what he did and what, what his hobbies were. You know, he was working at, he had a regular job, but this was something that he was really passionate about. And I said, oh, you know, martial arts is pretty cool. And I'm into, you know, I like the idea of, you know, self-defense and everybody loves ninjas and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool. And he was really excited about ground fighting. And, you know, I remember like when we, when we met the, and he was telling me about this, the first thing I had said to him was like, you're, you're a total idiot. Um, nobody fights on the ground. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody knows what a fight looks like. It looks like, you know, two people standing up and they're squaring mm -hmm. off and, they punch each other until someone can't continue. I mean, that's what a fight is, you know? Right. And he's like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. So that really was my introduction. And he showed me one or two things. And after that, he had, he, he basically, he had come to town. He was visiting. He went back to California. Before he left, he said, you should see if you can find the Gracie Academy. There's one in New York. And I had a couple of days free. I wasn't working. I think I was off for a couple of days and I, I was able to hunt down the Henzo Gracie Academy. And, you know, this was before the internet really. So it was like a lot of looking through the yellow pages and I went to the wrong place and people were like, Oh yeah, I know it used to be here. And then they moved to here. And then I went to the next place and they were like, no, 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 they were here. It was like chasing a ghost. It was like, I was, right. you know, very much like a detective, you know, uh, kind of on a case. And I ended up finally finding my way to, um, you know, Henzo Gracie Academy on uh, 37th Street, 38th Street. And it just, you know, that was my, that was my introduction. And so it was very much like it was in my mind a little bit, but it was really fate kind of brought me to it. And if I had not met this fellow, um, I probably would still be worried about it. You know, someone jumping out from behind a, you know, a tree to attack me. Still a little worried about that, but now it's a little bit better. Was that the first location or did you, I mean, I, that would, it's moved a couple of times the Academy. Yeah. 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 So, so it had been, um, it had been in a place called Chow's, which probably you guys have, uh, you know, heard people from the old days talk about and, and, you know, Chow's was like, uh, it was, it, it didn't have its own facility. It wasn't a standalone school. It was a space that was shared yeah. by a lot of different martial arts places. And so, you know, on Tuesday night, it was like, knife defense on Wednesday it was like ninjutsu and then like Thursdays was you know Gracie jiu-jitsu okay. and so they had just moved out of that space into the their own standalone Henzo's own standalone space right. and so that was right right when I showed up it was like the first week they had been there or something like that so that's yeah. good timing that is fair. yeah yeah I think so and what were those initial days like for you where so you just found the academy. You've gone in. Um, what was that room like? Yeah, it was a very intimidating place. Um, 
you know, I think that when people come to jujitsu now and they do martial arts, really anything, there's so much more information that's available when you're like preparing to research something, you know, and it could be rock climbing or it could be buying a bicycle or it could be going to a restaurant. You can just, you know, you go on and you, yeah, yeah, exactly. You hear other people's opinions or people are talking about it. You have, you know, Reddit and social media and things like this. We didn't have any of that. And so going into that room was like, I had no idea what to expect, you know? Um, And because I was, I had never done martial arts before. I didn't even have a context for a tra- for traditional martial arts. You know, I didn't I didn't expect that I was going to come in and have to, um, you know, bow and have like a formal class. I also didn't, you know, I had you know I had seen Fight Club and like that was maybe I thought maybe it was going to be like that. Um, right. But really, I had no idea. And so there was a lot of because there's a lot of uncertainty. I think that people were very on edge. You know, when you were when you were new coming in and right. um, as you guys have probably heard also, you know, a lot of people have talked about those early days where jujitsu in particular was attracting a sort of crowd that was a, a separate and apart from traditional martial arts. Um, so going in was like you had a group, you had a room and, um, you know, there were people there clearly who had been there who knew their you know, they, they knew what they were doing. Um, they had been doing jujitsu for a little while, but everybody else was really just feeling their way through. You know, when I came in, um, you know, uh, John Danaher, uh, Sean Williams, uh, Gene Dunn, these guys were purple belts. And so that was like, if you were a purple belt, you were like God tier, right. you know, like. <laughs> it's still like so, that in our country. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think in some ways, you know, I imagine like it's the early days. Yeah. It's still the early days. It's still the early days. So, um, you know, it was a sense, there was a sense of it being kind of like the wild west where you didn't know what you were going to expect and you didn't really know what other people knew, you know, or, or, um, and no one had really been there long enough because, you know, in the year 2000, it was like the most amount of time that anybody had been there was like six years, you know? Um, and that wasn't like people training twice a day. That was like, you know, three times a week, you know, for six years. And the people who had been there for that long were like purple belts. So it was a, it was a strange place. And, um, the, you know, I think there was a division among the people who were there. There were people who had done traditional martial arts, but for whatever reason had left or were pursuing this alternative alternative route, this like a little bit rougher and tougher kind of approach that jujitsu was presenting at the time. And then you also had people who were there out of that desperation. You know, they needed to be able to fight better than they were fighting. Right, and right. you had so then you had a crowd of people who were not martial artists per se, but were uh, police officers. They were security personnel. They were bouncers. people off the street. Yeah. yeah, they were bouncers. They were people off the street who were, you know, they wanted to fight. beat people up better right. than they were already doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm sure so, MMA fighters in the mix as well. Then, yeah, and you know, at the time, MMA was also very much like underground fights. It was not these that the shows were much smaller. Um, 
And it was a very amateur sort of thing to do. You know, the, the big events were like Japanese events. It was like, uh, you know, Pancrase okay. and, you right. know, even the, even the UFC was a little bit of a circus. I mean, it still is a circus, but it was like a real <laughs> like circus then, you know, like strong men and clowns. So it's more of a circus now than it ever has been. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, that's arguable. I think that's, yeah, I think that you're right. Back then it was like, it was much more like a, maybe it was more like a circus sideshow, you know, <laughs> fair enough. But yeah, that was, so, you know, going into that place, it was very much, there wasn't really a sense that you, you um, had a structure or that you knew what you were going to be getting. And um, so for someone like me who didn't have any experience and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a strong man. I wasn't like physically intimidating. I had to kind of uh, feel my way through what was going on. And I, I, you know, and honestly, I think that now for people who are starting, like if you're a white belt and you're beginning and you walk into a place where there are a room full of purple belts, you know, if, if you're in India or if you're here and there's like a room full of brown and black belts, you're still intimidated. So in some ways, nothing has changed. Right. Um, but yeah, it took me a little while to find a groove and to get used to it and to decide that I was going to stay. And, um, and I did. And you know, <laughs> here we are. So um, in, uh, in that context, uh, while you were coming up, what was a day of training like for you um, versus what is it like now today? Yeah. 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 So at the time there were two classes. Usually there were two classes a day. Um, there was an evening class and there was a daytime class. And most of the people who were like serious practitioners were coming at night. Oh, and okay. Henzo, Henzo was teaching at night. Oftentimes the instructors who were teaching the daytime classes were training at night. So the nighttime group was um, like Danaher, Sean Williams, Ricardo Almeida, Matt Serra, Nick Serra, Rodrigo Gracie. Uh, I'm probably forgetting everybody who's gone on to open their own academy by now. Yes. Yes. And all the other thing is a, a lot of those guys, most of those guys were doing, um, we're prepping for MMA fights, okay. you know, either at the time pride, like not too long after I had started, uh, was when Hoist fought Sakuraba. So there was the beginning of this like Japan versus Gracie's thing that came out of pride and like all of the pride that's, events that's and things so like exciting. that. Yeah. It was a really interesting time. And so in the evenings, there was this, there was like, there were gi classes and no gi classes, but the the MMA guys were there. And so it was a very, it was, there was like a kind of sense of like something really happening, you know, something kind of exciting happening. Then during the day, most of the people who were coming during the day were people who either were like me, where I was working at night a lot of the time, or I was on a schedule where I would have days off you know, inter intermittently during the course of the week. So it was much easier for me to be able to come in during the day because I, was, I didn't have any, anything to do. So there was a little bit of a, of a split between the nighttime and the daytime people. So I would be coming in three or four days a week at the beginning. Um, if I could do five days a week, then I would, but usually it was three or four days a week. And it was coming in 
to this kind of this class where it was like we were considered like the B team, you know, <laughs> and the, the teachers were Danaher and Sean Williams, you know, and sometimes um, Matt Sarah would come sometimes. And I think he was he was there and Rodrigo Gracie. Okay. So the, the four of them would teach John and Sean would co-teach and then um, Rodrigo and Matt would come in on on alternate days. So what was interesting about that time was because there was less attention on what we were doing, there was also a little less pressure, I think, among the people to, there were fewer people watching. So it had much more of a sense for me of being like a laboratory, that there were things you you could make a few more mistakes. You know, it was a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, there wasn't a, there wasn't like a lot of pressure for, you know, that there were people watching because right. anytime I mean, and this still is true, you know, anytime like Henzo is in the room, <laughs> there is a sense of, yeah, there's a sense of everybody rising to the expectations. Right. And I believe, you know, that's how it should be. You know, you mm-hmm. want to have an instructor who when they're in the room, they're bringing the level up. Of course, you know, with Danaher, that's always been the case also. But this was a little bit of a different, different time, you know. So as a result, there was a sense of, you know, camaraderie, a little bit of uh, a more relaxed approach in a way. And so that was cool. And I would come to the nighttime classes sometimes and it was, you know, it was crazy. It was great, but there were, you know, it was a lot of tension. It was like a lot of pressure. It was a lot of competition. Um, But in terms of my own training, you know, I was going in and I was doing, um, you know, you would arrive a little bit early and you would train a little bit to warm up with somebody who was there. The class would begin. Oftentimes the takedowns, now takedowns are such a part of our routine. But back then it was, you would do a few repetitions of a takedown that you liked, very informal. And then after that, you would go into the groundwork, which was the main focus of the class. And the instructor would teach you um, one or two or three techniques that were linked together in a chain, you know, or were related conceptually. And then after that, it was open-ended sparring. So after that, you would find a partner, you would train, we weren't on the clock. So you would, you would train with somebody until you were, you were done. And then when you were done, you would go on to somebody else. And that would happen until everybody had left the room. You know, there was never a moment where, okay, class is over, you're done. <laughs> You know, if the class began at noon and you could stay until three o'clock, there was probably someone else who would stay until three o'clock with you and you guys would train together. Um, And then if you needed to leave, like right after the instruction, you could only do a little bit of rolling. That would happen, too. So it had much more of like a club feel, um, which, you know, in a way was good. And I think if for people who needed like more structure, it wasn't great. But for people who were comfortable with a little bit of a looser structure, like there was a sense of self-study, you know, like independent study that was very good. Um, so that was then. And then now, of course, because, you know, the the approach has refined, you know, we've refined the approach and the, the structure, structure has become a little mm-hmm. bit clearer. Yeah. Um, you know, my training now is more self-directed because I have a little bit more control over my own um 
you know, as, as an instructor. And then, you know, because I have my own schools, like I can kind of set things up a little bit differently, but I try to train, you know, if I'm training three or four times during the course of the day, then that's not unusual. Um, Not all of those training sessions are hard, just as even in the old days, not all of our training sessions were hard. Of course, this is a core piece of the training philosophy that I think that John brought to interesting what we do, which is you don't have to train hard every day, but you should be training every day. Okay. So I make sure for myself that I'm training daily. Um, I may take a day off in order to be able to attend to other responsibilities. And I have a family and, you know, I want to make sure that that's taken care of as well, but training on Sundays. Uh, right now I don't train on Sundays, okay. but I used to, uh, I used to be consistently six days a week. Now I'm like a little more consistently five days a week. Correct. Okay. Um, but on the days when I'm off, when I'm not actually doing jujitsu, I'm doing something related to that. You know, I'll be doing, <laughs> okay. I'll be working out or I'll be running or I'll be, uh, you know, preparing for the week ahead and, you know, doing lesson plans and stuff like that. So there's always something. Okay. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when we were, when we were all together, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, the routine was much more structured as well, you know, in the, in the classroom there was, I think that a lot of times when people think about how the classroom is, they feel like, ah, you know, like jujitsu is like, you know, slap bump roll, like, let's just do, you know, what we're doing. But in a, in a professional training environment, which is, (laughs) you know, what we have, uh, you can't really get away with that for very long, you know? Um, Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yeah, you need you need a structure. You need a structure, and and I'll also say this. You know, I think that even you don't have to be at like a professional level to be training like a professional. You can have a very structured environment, mm-hmm. and yeah. one of the things that um, you know that developed over the years was that the routine, the specifics of what you're learning. There's always an element. There should be in a good classroom, in my opinion. There needs to be an element of familiarity and an element of something that's not familiar to you. Because if everything is familiar, then you get bored very easily. True. But if nothing is familiar, you get lost very easily. So that's and I think that for, yeah, for students who are, especially new students, people who are beginning, mm-hmm. you, need to have, you need to have something that people know and often it's like the warm up for the class and then like the structure of the class. So I always knew when I showed up and like, we all knew when we showed up to, to a class with Danaher that the class was going to work exactly the same way that it was going to be a standing technique, you know, or two. And then there would be a ground, you know, a series of ground techniques. It would be, um, you know, there would be like uh, two or three pieces of, of a connected line of thought. Right. And then that would, that would be, you know, there would be time to drill and practice and rehearse it. And then there would be a sparring component. Right. And things changed inside of that, you know, like the nature of the sparring changed depending on what was going on when, you know, prior to, um, you know, like prior to EBI and DDS and all of this, 
the structure was very much, it was like, uh, you know, we begin on the feet and work our way down to the ground. You know, after uh, people began to, you know, need more structure because the rules of the tournaments were governing what skills needed to get developed, then the sparring became more specific. Specific, like overtime you know, stuff. Exactly. Or like, you know, like, for instance, when, um, you know, during during the lead up to uh, the EBI era, mm -hmm. we were doing a lot of beginning, you know, beginning in those overtime positions, beginning with someone on the back, hands lock, beginning in the arm lock with someone defending. So, you know, those things would change, but the overall structure of the class was the same. You, it would be, there would be a portion standing, a portion on the ground and a portion rendered. So I think that for when you are creating a class, if you're an instructor, if you're building a classroom, there needs to be something that is predictable about it because we all, and I say all of us, I mean like the newest person in the room. And then also, you know, Gary and Gordon appreciated that like, yes, we knew what was coming. You know, it frees up your mind. It frees up your, your attention so that it can go into the right areas. Right. If it's just like a scrambly mess and you you're just trying to next. figure out what to do. Yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible. So, I mean, um, so you mentioned um, people trying to impress instructors um, with the popularity that Dana has had had gained in the recent years. Did you see a lot of influx of outsiders coming in and trying to impress um, the man himself, trying to go hard with uh, students? Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, that was also true. Um, you know, even, even when Henzo was teaching in the old days, it was very much like this where, and I imagine, you know, I haven't been to like a lot of other schools, but I imagine when like the head instructor is there, then everybody wants to be recognized. You know, right. everyone wants their, you know, they want the compliment or they want the attention. And so that would happen. Also, it was because, you know, we were in, you know, we're in New York City. So people were coming through. Lot, yeah. 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 Like people who did jujitsu. If you did jujitsu and you were in New York and you wanted to train, um, there were only a couple places to go. So a lot of people would come through. And then, you know, as, um, Denher's popularity increased as as Henzo's became better known. Um, people would come in, and in a way, you know, it's a double edged sword for people at that tier. You know, at like the kind of top tier. On one hand, you do want people coming who are uh, skilled and bring in alternative approaches. You know, Correct. you want to be able to have people who have different skill sets. Just like, you know, if you have a very good a spider guard mm -hmm. and i have a very good uh you know half guard it's good for us to train together because i gain your experience you know i gain experience working with someone like you and vice versa so there was that sense always and i think that where it goes where it goes wrong is when you know people are showing up specifically to you know, to, to, to kind of make a name or to try right. to, you know, make, make a name for themselves or make an impression on someone else's back. Right. And, you know, because we were, because that the team was so uh, powerful, you know, and such a dynamic mix of people, um, it wasn't, it never really got out of hand, but I think that the, 
the room also, you know, you have, the room is, is like an organism. And so if something goes too far out of balance, then the rest of the organism is also thrown out of balance. And so there yeah. were definitely days where people would come in and there would be an energy in the room. And you can feel this when you go to a, you know, when you're training in, in jujitsu or really if, you know, even if you're just at a large venue, like if you go to a concert or, you know, when we could go to concerts or like go to like a sporting event, you're right. sometimes like the energy is weird. You know, it's like there's some tension or like anxiety or things are crackling a little bit. And mm -hmm. when those, when moments like, you know, during moments like that, everybody is a little bit unsettled. And yeah. so there were certainly days where people would come in and there was a ripple effect and then everybody's a little nervous and you see people like get injured for no reason. Right. Or they're just um, on edge. Yeah. They're on edge. So, like people, the whole room is kind of going like a little bit too hard and no one's right. watching where everybody else is, you know, what other people are doing. So that definitely happened where people would come in and, um, and try to impress, you know, uh, you know, the instructor and, you know, yeah. It's, it's just amazing to me that, um, that they were still open to, I mean, visitors can train with like world champion caliber athletes at the, yeah. in the same room. I mean, just walk in regular walk-ins, um, yeah. people you don't know. Um, were there ever any indications or thoughts of making the room a closed room, um, not letting visitors in? Did that ever happen? Um, well, there was, you know, again, I think that there was a period of time where it was a little bit looser and things were a little more open. And then as we became like a little bit more professional mm -hmm. in the approach. Money was on the line. A lot of yeah, money was I think on the line. So, I think some, some, for sure some of it was that. And then also as, as happens, you know, when people become, um, you know, when people began winning these major tournaments, they became the standard that others wanted to measure themselves against. Correct. So, yeah. You know, um, I think that there was a way in which, you know, that that had to be kept in check because mm -hmm. you couldn't just have, uh, you know, a person coming off the street who was strong and they were tough and Injuring someone. <laughs> they, yeah, they they you know they they make sloppy mistakes or you know they're sloppy. They make they make beginner errors or. Um, you know, they take risks that they shouldn't take. Yeah. So although the room was open, there was not everybody would that. yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like not everybody would train with everybody, you Fair know, enough. like, yeah. um, which I think is, it's as much of a safety, it you know, is, it's, yeah. it's, it's safety for everybody, right. It's safety <laughs> for the, you know, the, the guys at the top and then it's safety for the people who are coming in also so that they don't, you know, do something that will get them hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well put. <laughs> yeah, because we've dealt with a, a few of those instances ourselves where it's basically uh, guys who are just a little bit lesser experienced or whatever, they just maybe they tend to freak out or they tend to go a little harder than they should. And right. that's exactly when these kind of injuries happen. I mean, like, as we yeah, mentioned to right. you, we are where you were in the early or mid nineties. Um, right. <laughs> we have a, we have one black belt, one brown belt and about four purple belts in the country. So it's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's such, it's actually, you know, like that time was, 
you know, I think that there were a lot of things that we could have done better, but I think that there were also in terms of the, you know, the excitement and like the potential and the enthusiasm, there was a lot of really, there were a lot of really good things happening. Um, yeah. We yeah. So that, it's, yeah. It's a cool place. I, to I, be. I know what yeah. you mean. I know what you mean. Um, professor, I, I have something, um, I, I mean, I've noticed um, you are probably one of the few instructors that inculcates Nogi judo um, into his uh, tutorials or the videos you put up on your YouTube um, channel. Um, do you see yourself uh, one coming out with some kind of an instruction on BGJ fanatics and two, um, how, how much do you think that Nogi judo can be implemented in today's jiu-jitsu game as a whole? Yeah, I think these are good. These are good questions. You know, um, I would like, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of ideas and I think some uh, material that would be, you know, beneficial to, you know, to people. So hopefully there'll be a way for us to get, get some of that out right. um, and to be able to share it in a more, more structured way. You know, I, I like the YouTube platform because as it, like with, you know, like we're able to talk like this, but, you know, people from anywhere in the world are able to go on and, and, and can get access information. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, um, but having a little bit more of a structured lesson plan or kind of a, a, a through line through the techniques, it's difficult to do on YouTube. So having a more formal, uh, you know, curriculum, I think would be, would be helpful. So my hope is to be able to do that sooner rather than later. Um, the thing about nogi judo and like standing position, number one, the standing position in, you know, in jujitsu tends to be something that people shy away from. And there are good reasons for that. The likelihood of injury is much higher, you know, um, when you're working from the standing position and it's not necessarily a skill-based thing. It's because you have two bodies colliding off the ground yeah and then Correct. we have to fall yeah. so you have issues of like falling body weight you have issues of the person who is being thrown or say back exposure uh sorry yeah yeah i mean i think from a technical standpoint you know mm -hmm. when you're doing this you have concerns about like back exposure you have concerns about um uh like just general safety concerns right. you know um so there's like these things you know whereas when we're on the ground the other thing is about you know in a wrestling both both wrestling and judo is you have to be kind of explosive to be able to be effective with the techniques against so much resistance mm -hmm. right. and the the this the point system and the rules are set up in both judo and wrestling really to be able to reward somebody for a hundred percent effort in a single direction. Right. Yeah. In jujitsu, we don't have that as much. You know, our 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 energy is dispersed much. You know, in a much along a much greater, uh, you know, plane where mm -hmm. you have attacks one way and the other. You're able to change directions, so you never really want to be moving a hundred percent in one, right. you know, in one laser beam focused area unless you already have control and you're going for the submission or you're going for the double leg. So. Right. Um, you know, it can be a little bit more, uh, it can be a little dangerous, but that said, I think that there is a way to develop standing work in jujitsu with a, a progress oriented mindset. 
-hmm. that includes safety so that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like kind of in the shadows. I think that for a lot of people in jujitsu, it's like if, if you're both standing, we're both, you know, you're both waiting just quickly to get to the ground. Yeah. You know, you're going to sit to the guard or like whatever I have to do to, <laughs> even if he takes me down. And I mean, I remember feeling like this when I first started too. I was like, as long as I don't care if I get thrown, as long as we end up on the ground and I don't get hurt on the right. way down, yeah. right. at least now we're here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, my mindset has changed a little bit since then, but I think that probably for beginners, there is a sense of like, let's just get down to the ground and get this, get this over with. Stay safe here. Yeah. Get, yeah. Get down safely. But, you know, I think that there is definitely a place for Nogi, uh, you know, wrestling, judo, stand up mm-hmm. in in people's experience, because. You know, as I told this guy when, when I first began, like everything starts standing, you know, unless you're unless you're going to like walk out and sit to guard, which is, you know, fine in a you know tournament, but you should feel comfortable at least knowing what to do from a standing position. Right. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. Uh, but on, on a more technical note, um, yeah. uh, for Nogi Judo, would you, would you reckon that uh, the higher percentage throws or trips are in the backward direction for, in, for, for your opponents, let's say Kouchi, Ochi, or Yokosoto Gaki, stuff like that? Is that more higher percentage than in the forward direction? Yes, is- I think, yeah, from a technical, from a technical standpoint, and you know, it, the, the technical kind of feeds into the strategic with jujitsu, because as you were saying, you know, you don't want to go into a throw that works beautifully, but leaves you exposed. Right. You know, it leaves your back exposed, it leaves your neck exposed. And so we see this a lot of times when people are learning how to do even the double leg, you know, which is a backwards takedown, mm-hmm. but they find themselves getting guillotined, or they mm-hmm. find themselves being taken over with like a, you know, yeah. a Tomoinagi, a Sumigeshi, you know. Right. Um, so there are certain things, yeah, with no gi judo that we want to avoid, you know, namely big, big back, you know, turn, turn throws and things that expose the back a lot. Okay. So yes, throws, the things that we favor in general with no gi judo are attacks to the feet. So Ashiwaza, Koichigari, Oichigari, Sasai, Diashibarai. These things, because they're low risk, high reward. If they work very well, then you've knocked your, your partner down. Right. If they don't work, you're not out of position. You're okay. And if they work only partially, you've stumbled somebody and you've taken them out of balance, which leaves them open to a secondary attack. So strategically, it's great regardless. So strategically, it's great. And then mm-hmm. technically those skills are not that difficult to learn. You know, it takes a lot to be able to learn to do a turn throw, not only because the timing and the setup and the off balance and all the other requirements, but you have to have the confidence to be able to rotate and to be able to do a throw where you're not looking at the person. To essentially flank yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're, you're, you're also, you can't see what's going on. So like if I hit a throw where the person's behind me, I need to feel their resistance. I can't like see it. Whereas a lot of times you're doing Koichigari, Oichigari, you see what the person's see, doing. Yeah. You yeah. can see their head position. You can see them posting or you can see where they're stepping. Yeah. So the two major exceptions to that with no gi are usually Uchimara and Harai Gosh. Right. 
And the reason is because you can work both of those off of uh, a wizard, like an overhook. Overhooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the overhook saves you from the back exposure. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, like if you if you have the overhook, your partner is going to have a very difficult time going around behind you. And you can get away with this rotational turn with a minimal amount of back exposure, you know? Yeah. So those two throws are ones that we've favored. And you see in, in tournament play that even at the highest levels, Harai Ghosh happens all the time. Um, Craig Jones did one we've recently. Oh yeah, with Craig Jones, I just want to mention. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, Gary, you know, Gary Tonin has used Harai Ghosh in the past very effectively. Um, and he, he managed to do it with and, a lap grip as well. Yeah, and he used and yeah, you can, to roll to the legs as well. Then for yeah, your, uh, exactly, uh, exactly. You have some alternative grips, Correct. and then entries okay. into the legs when things when things don't go. And then Uchimata is another one because Uchimata is a throw that can be done one handed, no gi, because the overhook, the overwrap, and then the post hand on the floor. And um, again, if things go south, you got Victor's rolls and all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, you have you have the ability to roll out. You have the overhook. Awesome. So yeah, hopefully yeah. that's helpful. That is very helpful. It really is. Yeah. Um, Good. So, have you dealt with any significant injuries over your <laughs> tenured career? And yeah. uh, if so, give us some tips. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. So I think for um, I think that injuries are a part of what we do. Absolutely. And so it can be helpful to think about when I talk to students about injuries, first of all, I try to talk about injuries before they happen. A lot of times people, you know, instructors are talking about injuries only after they happen. And, and they're like, oh, you shouldn't have done this. Yeah. Or they don't talk about them because they don't want, you know, they don't want to scare people off. Right. But understandably. Yeah. And I think that we can talk about injuries as being in a couple of different categories. And there are, you know, avoidable injuries, which are things that you can correct for. There are unavoidable injuries, which are things that just happen in the course of the training. Mm -hmm. And then there are catastrophic injuries, which may be avoidable or unavoidable, but you should know very well, like what the major causes of those are so that you can stay well away from them. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, um, so I'll work, work from the from the least to the worst you know the least bad to the to the worst but when you're talking about um like avoidable injuries you know we're talking about things like you know that you have control over so what's an avoidable injury well an example of an avoidable injury is when you and i are training together i have to have enough self-awareness and control that i don't break your arm when i put you in the arm lock you know like that's an injury that I can train to prevent. Of course. And sometimes that sort of training comes out of a more uh, gen- like a, a gentle approach, but like a more moderate approach to speed and power, you know, where if you and I don't have the same skill level, if I put a lot of pressure on you, I may prompt a reaction out of fear or, you know, ignorance that yeah. leads you to get injured. So some of it has to do with regulating pace and that some that, that often will come from the instructor and the training room. You know, you have to say, okay, you know, everybody look, we're going to be working at a moderate pace 
in order to be able to keep everybody safe. And so different levels can work together. Right. Um, other avoidable injuries, you know, are things like slowing down enough, you know, ways that ways that ways to avoid injuries are, you know, you can slow down enough so that you're not at risk of like elbowing someone in their eye or, you know, kneeing them in their groin or, you know, things like that. Um, it happens though sometimes. It happens, <laughs> but it's right. Exactly. But so it daily. happens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. Well, sometimes me too, you know, um, <laughs> but those sorts of things, they're avoidable. And also you have to understand as a student that things like that will happen. Right. Yeah. You know, you will, you will get bumps and bruises, muscle strains for the first, I think for the first four or five months of training, I had like incredibly bad tendonitis in my elbows. You know, and the reason was because I was doing all of this, like pulling with the gi and like pushing. And I had never done any of this before. I wasn't training in the, you know, I didn't have a big workout routine. Uh, I wasn't going to the gym. I didn't do any like prep. So I suffered through that for, for months. And, um, you know, I saw that as just kind of soreness and part of the process. When people start to see little injuries like that or kind of moments of discomfort as being something wrong with the training, right. then often they go like, ah, there's something wrong here, so I need to stop. Or there's something wrong here, so I'm going to blame you. <laughs> Instead of understanding that like the body needs time to adapt to this sort of activity unless you're already doing it, you know. Right. Right. Um, so unavoidable. Does, does that make sense to you guys? Does that yeah. like sound it true? Does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like occasionally you're going to get somebody who like, uh, you know, spins around too fast and they elbow you. So like I would get you get with a spastic person and, you know, like I got four or five times like, you know, the same cut here all the time, you know, like somebody's elbow, somebody's knee, somebody headbutts knee. Right. And so, yeah, you know, like you have to. I got, you know, you get stitches. Yeah. yeah, you get stitches and people who are not doing jujitsu don't understand. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, they yes, see I it am. as catastrophic, you know, like, what are you yeah. doing? Yeah. Those sorts of things, you know, they're going to happen. Um, and, you know, you can do like the common sense stuff. You keep your nails short so that you don't scratch the person. And then your nail doesn't get like peeled off backwards when, you know, you're grabbing the gi. Um, you can wear a mouth guard if you feel like, you know, there's a risk that you're going to, you know, someone's going to bump you in the chin. You're going to knock your teeth out. Um, you know, you can make sure your gi is well fitting and it's not like too baggy or like too tight where like the person's got to grab your skin. Um, you can make sure that you are, you know, washing your uniform regularly. Like all these like very that was my standard next point. Smells half things. decent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people, People will tap to your arm lock. They shouldn't tap to you because like you're <laughs> mounted on them and like you, you smell like a pile of like burning garbage. You know, people are like, oh, you know, tap. You know, that's not a victory. You know, it's not a success. <laughs> um, and then, you know, also like skin diseases, that stuff is common. It's been common in wrestling for a long time. It's, you know, true in jujitsu, whether it's, you know, ringworm or staff. So those things you can cut down to just basic common sense things. Right. Um, you know, the next category is unavoidable injuries. And I think that those range, you know, there's just 
part of that is developing a more stoic approach to, you know, to things going wrong. And it goes back to my, my, my thought about when, you know, like if, if somebody elbows you accidentally, as long as they're not, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not ending your life. Yeah. You know, like it's just part of it. And right. sure. we often make, you know, injuries in particular, you're often like, there's like the injury. And then there's like, the, there's like the first injury and the second injury. Like the first injury is when um, somebody headbutts you. And the second injury is when you take it personally. You know, the first injury is like you got a cut. The second, the second injury is you panic about the cut. And then you, you know, you, you know, you have a total freak out and you come back and try to kill the person or you totally retreat into like a shell and you're like, I'm never doing jujitsu again, you know? So accepting the fact that you're, you know, we're not playing checkers here, you know, we're not, we're not, yeah, Yeah. you're, you might get, you might get injured and then having a a cultivating a little bit more of a stoic approach also serves you in other parts of your life because part of the nature of being a a human being is that the things that you, you get a lot of the things that you don't want and you're always chasing after the things that you do want and they always seem to be disappearing before your eyes. So if you can approach the whole process with a little bit more of a stoic view, you tend to have a better time, I think, of it. Um, that's refreshing. And then the, yeah, yeah, you, you have, you, you do, you have to, you know, you have to have that. Otherwise you're, you, there's no longevity for you. Yeah. You're going to hit a wall every Um, few weeks. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, you need someone to talk you off the ledge or like someone to call you up and be like, Oh, you should come back to training. Like what happened to you? And you're like, ah, you know, he he hit me in the head. Like guys, a jerk. Yeah, no. we've dealt with our fish. I had a pickle for every time I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to do that. Is yeah, sick. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think, but I think you know, as instructors, talking about this stuff beforehand is helpful. You say, listen, in this environment, we have to trust one another—not just like a blind trust, but a trust that, you know, uh, I'm not deliberately trying to hurt you. Even right. though it looks on the surface because jujitsu has this brutal Approach, you know, right. aspect to it. Yeah. Right. yeah, but like even in that context, it makes us much more sensitive to one another. You know, if I know that I can break your arm, Probably I want to have a much yeah. greater sensitivity to, to the right. fact that I could do it. And right. you take the average person on the street walking around and, you know, they're like, you know, if they get into it, they don't have a sensitivity to that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an on or an off switch. Whereas we get to develop this finer gradation, you know. Um, and then the last that. piece, which I'll just, what'd you say? I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the average person is like not, they have no consciousness. <laughs> of no it. control either. Yeah. No Sorry. control either. Yeah. So the last piece is the kind of catastrophic injury. Mm-hmm. And those are things which, you know, we want to avoid at all costs and we really need to take as much care as we can to stay out of or as instructors prevent situations where people can become catastrophically injured. So what are we talking about with that? Well, um, we're talking about injuries, a lot of injuries that happen standing down to the ground where there's falling body weight. And an example of that, you, you can think of these jumping the guard Um, flying leg attacks, 
flying triangles, flying arm locks. It, you know, this is not a dis, you know, this is not a debate about whether those techniques work or not. This is a, about keeping people safe for the long term when they're training inside of a of a dojo. You know, people go to tournaments and you know, you sign a waiver for a reason when you're doing a, a you know, a tournament right. or a competition, you're accepting the risk, but you don't want to accept an unacceptable risk in the training day to day. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can have a couple of structures set up inside of the, the, the classroom that allow you to keep people safe. And then as a practitioner, you can recognize there are times when you may be with somebody who you don't know, or you don't trust, you know, you asked about people coming in to the, you know, to the basement or, you know, to Henzo's all the time. And there, there were times where we were matched up with people, you know, who we didn't know. And Mm -hmm. if there's somebody, it's different. Like if it's a, you know, someone comes in and there were a lot of, you know, for instance, it would be, uh, you know, UFC fighters would come in. Yeah. And at first blush, you would think, Oh, like this is going to be a tough, you know, this is going to be like a, like, I got to be careful. Those are professionals. And as hard as they fight and as tough as they are and as skilled as they are, at the end of the day, they know exactly how to train properly because they don't want to get injured either. So those are not the people that we need to be concerned about. The people that we're concerned about are people who are, you know, maniacs looking for a way to prove their name or like make a statement. So there are times where, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in my standing techniques, you know, like I'm pretty, I'm pretty good, you know, with that. But if I don't know you, I'll still sit down, you know, to right. guard and work right. from there. And it's not because I don't know what I'm doing. It's because I don't know what you're doing. Right. You know? <laughs> that makes sense. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, kind of injury prevention 101 and, and a good, a good way of thinking about it, I think. Uh, Professor, we've heard a lot of stories about you going up against um, world champions and absolutely obliterating them in the gym. Uh, <laughs> is there All any lies. truth to that? <laughs> All lies. <laughs> so, yeah, tell us a little bit about. I mean, we do. I mean, I don't think you'd ever admit that. I mean, from what we've uh, not good for their brand. <laughs> no, no. We, I mean, just from our, our conversation. But um, yeah, we do hear stories. There are stories out there. Um, and uh, what about you, um, you and your competition career? Have you ever thought about it? Have you, have you competed quite a bit? Not really. You know, one of the things that's always been most interesting to me about the training, and this is even from the very beginning, was there, there are two, two things. You know, the first one is that I've always been, you know, I love I love jujitsu. I love the martial arts. And one of the things that I love the most about it is the process of, of getting to a place where the techniques work for me. And that process has, has always been the thing that I'm most interested in. And it doesn't mean that like, I'm not interested in outcome or I'm not interested in uh, results or I'm not interested in like, I, you know, I like to do well. I like, you know, I like, um, I don't like losing, you know, but I think that people who have been, the people who have been very, very successful in like tournament or competition have that as a driving motivator. And my motivation has always 
been much more process oriented rather than outcome oriented. And as a result, especially during those, you know, like the first 15 years of training, I enjoyed being a part of this process of developing the system of working directly with, you know, uh, you know, Danaher and I were training, you know, you know, daily, you know, as part, you know, training, I was his training partner for 20 years, you know, 15 years until he wasn't able to train anymore. And I believe that being attached, more attached to a process is a big reason why I stuck with jujitsu over time. When we get attached to, I think when we get too attached to the outcome of what we're doing, yeah, we can, even when, even for most people, like even the most idealistic person, I think can become jaded or feel um, burnt out. Can, yeah. You can get burnt out if you're not seeing the results that you expect to see from the work that you're putting in. And for me, I was always more interested in just coming back and putting in more work. Yeah. So I kind of left the, the tournament stuff and the, the high level competition to the guys who really loved it. And right. the, the DDS guys, you know, uh, you know, everybody on the team, you know, uh, you know, Gordon and Gary and, um, you know, uh, Craig and Ethan and Taza and Nikki Ryan, all these guys, Nikki Ryan love to do it. You know, it's just they, it drives them. And I was never really driven by that. I was, I was much more interested in the R&D, you know, like the research and development. Nuance of And I was, yeah, and I was, I was lucky. It was also a product of being in a certain time and place because there was no, you know, John was not really doing, uh, he wasn't building a team. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there was no, and, and Henzo was building a team, but I wasn't, it was, you know, I was kind of on this B, I was on the B team, you know, I was coming <laughs> during the daytime. And so I wasn't really a part of that either. So a lot of it was circumstantial and some of it was just temperamental, but I also think that it turned out pretty well because even now where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm past you know, like peak years of like when I, when I would have been a competitor, you know, at a very high level, you know, I, I believe like, I believe I'm past that time. You know, I don't know if I would have been great or not. Like, but I, I do know, like I'm past when I, when that peak is, you know? And so, (laughs) well, you know, I think like, you know, if you're, if you're in your twenties, you know, your twenties, your, you know, your thirties, like, no, that's a good time. That's, that's a good time for the body. That's a good time for like, usually life responsibilities, you know, the world kind of forms around you instead of you having to kind of form around it. But, um, you know, I think that now because I didn't have like a big, uh, you know, there wasn't this big mountain that I climbed. I didn't have this large descent either afterwards. And I, for me personally, like I prefer that I prefer like a lower amplitude experience because it keeps me in a narrow band where I can work on what I need to work on and continue to progress according to my teacher's instructions. So that's always been the, the, you know, the core thing for me. And then on the other, like, like running parallel to that, 
every day was a competition. I mean, I was in, in the, in the, you know, again, you know, like Henzo's was the Mecca. It is the Mecca. Right. It is the so, Mecca. you know, the, the day that I got my black belt, it was, uh, you know, at the time, so this was 2006. So at the time, like in that training room, the, the day was like, uh, I and mean, I don't know, you guys may know these names, maybe not, maybe I'm like, this is like, like the old days, but <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, Marcio Feitoza, who was like a world champion, like the main head instructor for Gracie Baja now, but at the time was like unbeatable. As a, um, Ricardo Almeida, uh, Danaher, Sean Williams, Henzo, um, Gene Dunn, uh, Fabio Leopoldo, uh, Peter Chumba, like a lot of like those at the time, you know, those were the guys who are winning the worlds, winning the Pan Ams. It was like, that was the room. So yeah. even if I had gone to like a, yeah, like even if I had gone to like a local tournament, like I was getting better training day to day, you know, I think, yeah, like tougher, sure, tougher people you know, not to take away from anybody else, but like for sure those guys were like some of the toughest jujitsu practitioners at the time on the planet. And then, um, you know, we had, you know, Frankie Edgar, you know, as on his rise up, right. Chris Weidman, you know, uh, you know GSP. Kept getting better and better. It was, yeah, it was amazing. You know, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I never really had, I think that it's a little bit different maybe if you're training in a place where there aren't, that level of you know high level there aren't right. as high level com, you know competitors and people to work with but for me that need was satisfied mm -hmm. you know i i knew exactly how i was doing with the people who i was working with not only that but i was also being put up against you know not against but i had this very hot you know the gold standard you know henzo john like doesn't get better. It that. almost like it would have been weird, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. 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 So since we uh, touched the topic of uh, John Danaher, um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with John over the years? And like, of course, it would be hard to put into words the influence he's had, but just try for us, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are a few times, if you're lucky, I think in our lives, we come across people who are um, exactly the right teacher for us in exactly the right way. I think that if you're, if you're lucky, you come across someone like that, maybe once, maybe twice in your life. And I was fortunate enough to be able to come across him at a time when everything fit for me at, in a way that made total sense. And when I say that, I think that it represent it. It's a little misleading because the sort of thing that I needed when I began jujitsu was exactly the sort of per, exactly the sort of thing that he was he was providing not and he wasn't even providing it he was like being that person so when we talk about 
you know, have find, finding the right teacher. It's like, there's, you know, you have teachers and there's, you know, you plenty of people to learn from, but to be able to have uh, a true mentor, mm-hmm. I think is rare. And you have, you, you need a little bit of luck to be able to recognize that person at the time when they show up, you know? Right. So the other, the other component is that often they don't really, they don't often fulfill your initial expectations of what you think you want. And the reason that this is important is because we live now in a time, and I won't speak for where you guys are, but I know for sure here where the culture of, um, like our, our culture encourages people to seek out what they, what they want and not to be satisfied unless they, unless they have exactly things exactly their way. You know, it's very much, I don't know if you guys have this, but here there's Burger King and the Burger King slogan was have it your way. You know, it was like, if you want a burger with cheese, you can have a burger with cheese. If you want a burger with two buns, you can have a burger with two buns. And I think the American culture, the Western culture here is like, you're used to having things exactly your way. Right. In fact, that often, I believe that often prevents us from getting exactly what it is that we need because we're closed off to the possibility that the person or the way that you're going to get exactly what you need doesn't look the way that you want it to look. Right. So, when I first began and, you know, I first, when we first met, I think that I, I was, I didn't really know what I was looking for. And I didn't really even know that I, I needed to have somebody who was a good guide like that. Um, over time, it became clear to me that this person was providing for me some, something very vital that went beyond just a technical instruction in jujitsu, which was, you know, as close to perfect, I think, as you can get, that's my opinion, but there was something else that was going on. And as a result, it had a very profound influence on how I looked at the rest of my life, my relationships, my responsibilities, the trajectory of my life. And so he provided all of those things without really giving me what I wanted. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that the first lesson, you know, one of the first lessons that I learned was, you know, on the mat in jujitsu, that you can have a very clear approach to a problem that seems otherwise totally unmanageable. That there is like a problem solving method to even like the most chaotic situation, which gives you a sense of clarity. It doesn't give you the, it doesn't right give answer. you the answer. Right. Yeah, but it gives you the, the method to get there. Right. And I don't wanna leave Henzo out of the equation either because I think that the, the like his approach to jujitsu in general is very much like this. And I think that his influence on John was very much like this. Like the whole, 
the approach, you know, like having a more systematic approach to problems and to chaos and bring it under control and ordering it was, it was revelatory, you know? And so that was one of the very first lessons that I learned, I learned from him on the mat. And it was yeah. inspiring enough to be able to lead me to other things. And I, and ultimately I, I learned to trust him and I trusted him with my progress and I trusted him with um, the direction that I was headed. And in turning, turning myself over to him in that way, I was able to, I watched, I watched the changes, you know, I watched actual progress in jujitsu. I watched um, transformation, you know, myself, I, it's like kind of an overused word, but yeah. he's talked about it too. You know, I came, when I came in, the person who I came in as, and the person that I am now, or the person that I was, you know, 10 years later, unrecognizable. Right. So, yeah. So I think like on a more holistic level, as a mentor, he really provided me with so, so much more than jujitsu, right? Yeah. So much more than jujitsu. Um, and then in terms of jujitsu itself, you know, Henzo, uh, Hen, you know, Henzo aside, like Henzo kind of along with this, but I don't have another uh, jujitsu other than Danaher jujitsu. You know, I don't, I haven't had another instructor in that way. So I don't know anything else. I've never known anything else. And it's interesting to me now to watch as the system that he's developed becomes available to the world and people are drawing on it and like taking pieces and putting it together. Um, because it's just been the water that I've always been swimming in. Right. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. You know, I'm very grateful and, um, I think with a teacher like this, you have a debt that will never be repaid. You know, I'll never be able to repay him for what he's done for me. And um, I cool. like that, actually. I as mean, a, it's as a, cool, right? Yeah, but, I think it's a cool I mean, I, I, I'd like to tell you the influence he's had on um, Indian Jiu-Jitsu as a whole. Um, when, his, when his first, I think, first or second system was the leg lock system um, and then his back attack system. And we got all of them, like, all six enter the systems and um, I started teaching them. I was running an academy at the, that time. I started teaching them. I started teaching them and we had a sub only tournament. We had competitions coming and we ran through everyone. Um, I mean, we were the, were the best in the country at the moment and it's thanks to John Dana. Um, so it has had a profound effect across the world. So I don't think that you can, I mean, if there was a way to measure it, this would be one, um, but it's carried, it's gone yeah. literally across the world and it's changed lives here as well. Yeah, so. it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a sense of that also, you know, I mean, the stuff I was talking about, you, you're able to see it and uh, it's a powerful thing, you know, I'm, and, and, and I'm sure that, you know, other people who are listening to this or who are, who are practicing, you know, have that same feeling about, you know, their own instructors, I'm sure, you know, like there are stories. One of the great things about the martial arts is that that relationship, that student teacher relationship is unique. Uh, you know, you, you get it sometimes, like if you go to school, like you go to college, like you have a, a someone who really, yeah. you know, you connect with, remember, but yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, you know, your students probably feel uh, like that about you to some degree, you know, and I'm sure, you know, my students feel like that 
about me to some degree, but it's unique in a way to the martial arts because it has all of these different components. It has a sense of, you know, there is a teaching, but it's not just theoretical. There is like a practical skill you're gaining. You can see immediate results. Right. You can work, you can build off of what you're learning. You can um, refer back to it. And it's just, it, it's quite a thing, you know, it's quite an amazing thing. It really is. That and no. it's not just all talk. Like it, <laughs> it's, it's quantifiable like, at, after certain in application, point. it works and irrefutably yeah. so. So I think that's what makes it so much more special and so unique as compared to you know other forms of just information disseminated. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. All right. Final question. Uh Mois, you had a good one. So um again, we a lot of these are from our listeners. Um as you've aged and as you've progressed in jujitsu, and you've, of course, uh, we, as we mentioned earlier, you've trained with guys, giant guys like Nicky Rod and uh, Gordon. Um, how do you keep improving and keep up with these young guys, like e- even on a technical front and from your stoic? Technical front, I don't think you should, you, you, you'd have an issue, would you? Uh, but just on a physical front, yeah, yeah, let's put it like tech, that. technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that honestly, yes, I do. I think that um, there are some components, you know, of the training that are non-jujitsu components that people can work on and develop. You know, you can develop your stamina, you can develop your strength, you can develop your speed. I've put a lot of stock. And again, this is, this is how I was taught. You know, I was taught that if you want to get better at jujitsu, then you have to do jujitsu. You know, if you want to get better at, if you want to get faster, then, you know, you can sprint, you know, you can do, you know, if you want to get stronger, then you can lift weights, but jujitsu is its own skill. And so as a result, like I've, I put a lot of stock in the technique and it's it it's tend it it has tended over the years to pay off for me in that in that way um on the other not on the other hand but like i'll put a little kind of caveat in there which is that when we talk about systems and we talk about the you know like the, the back attack system or leg lock system or, you know, the whole system, you know, the kind of meta system. There are some elements of jujitsu training, which are non-technical, like they're, they're separate and apart from the technique. They include the technique, but they're not, they're not mechanical. And those have to do with the sort of softer skills that I was talking about before, like problem solving, stress management, um, having a sense of awareness of where you are and general body mechanics. And those things get built up over time. So marrying the techniques inside of those, that larger structure is also very helpful. You know, on like a practical level, I know like when, you know, when Nikki Rod first showed up, when on a practical level, like I knew, I wasn't going to be able to be stronger than this guy. And I wasn't going to be able to be faster than this guy or more athletic. And he was, you know, whatever he was like 20 years younger than me. 
So I had to go to what I, to what I know rather than try to compete with him on his strengths. And what I know is I know, I know jujitsu. Like I have confidence in my ability to frame and fold my body and to measure distance and to use grips and to off balance. And experience has dictated, you know, for me, and I think for everybody, I'm talking about myself, but like everybody, experience can dictate for you how you make those decisions. And often those decisions are made in the moment, but you know, you have experience to be able to know when and where is the, is the proper time to deploy a given technique. Right. And as a result of that, over time, we become even more efficient. To me, efficiency at this age of practice is more about the efficiency of decision-making and making it much uh, more frictionless than it is about like the efficiency of the specific technique or the lock. You know, you want to be able to be efficient. When most people talk about jujitsu, it's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, transfer of force into like the fulcrum, you know, like you want to, you want to actually put the arm in a place where it can be hyperextended. So you want to be efficient with your, your technique. But there is a kind of meta efficiency where you're working with someone who's stronger or faster or heavier. And you don't want to be, you don't want to be trying to deploy an efficient technique at the wrong time because that's not efficient. So some of it is weathering some, like in a case like that, it's like weathering the storm, you know, for, you know, there were plenty of times where, you know, and, you know, Nikki Rod would like put a ton of pressure and that's his thing. Yeah. So weathering that storm, and being able to hunker down and then find a spot that's the right place to be able to go into the, whatever it is that I wanted to do, which would give me the best chance of surviving and then thriving. Right. That was also a big part of it. So when I watch people training, like when I talk to people who are older training with people who are younger or people who are um, lighter training with heavier people. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much about, uh, being efficient in terms of your decision-making process and understanding when to use what you have instead of trying to match somebody else's strengths. And, and again, this is like straight out of, you know, the, the, the Danaher model, because it was never about meeting somebody at their strength and then overcoming them. It was always about guiding somebody to their weakness and then using that as an opportunity for you to, for you to deploy the strongest part of what you do. So, you know, like there are times where, you know, I'm happy to say, you know, Nikki, you know, again, I use Nikki Rod as the example because in everybody's mind, he's like this, you know, behemoth guy who's explosive and like flexible beyond all expectation, you know, (laughs) but like I, we trained together a lot and there were days where we trained hard and I never got hurt with, right. you know, and he never hurt me. And I never heard him. And that's a victory in itself in a lot it of is. ways. Um, so I think that I think that if you're approaching the training in, with that mindset, then it it stops you from having to battle somebody on these on a playing field that will never ever be in your favor. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the other the another piece of that is you have to take your ego out of it. And I know this is kind of like everybody talks about this 
Yeah, yeah. it's a cliche, but if if at, at and only you know, you know, only the practitioner really knows. But like if at your core you feel like there's something that this guy is doing that's like insulting, you know, your like, you know, like the little the little the little eye that lives inside you, you know, like if there's like, it's being attacked because this guy is going to pass your guard or he's going to snap you down. Then it's, I think it's very, very difficult to stay in a place where you can deal with what's coming without becoming reactive. And, you know, another guy who was like this for me, um, who I appreciate more, I think in retrospect than I did at the time was uh, Jake Shields who is just, I mean, has to be one of the toughest guys on the planet. Like just talked about enough. He is just a brutal person. I mean, he's a savage person. (laughs) And I had great training with him. It wasn't always great, like objectively for me, you know, like (laughs) if you watched it, like I wasn't always like doing great, but it was great training for me because I was under such pressure And I was in such a place where, you know, my resources were pushed to their maximum capacity. Right. uh, That I had to grow and improve because of that. But I did, you know, and I did partly because I worked as hard as I could with what I had. And then when you're up against the limits of that, you know, like if your arm is extended, it's extended. If it's hyperextended, you have to tap unless Mm -hmm. you want to get, you know, unless you want to have it broken. And the next time you hope that you don't get to the point where it's hyperextended, you know, I think that that image resonates for us as practitioners, but it's applicable on a much larger level when you're working with someone who's bigger and stronger or a younger or faster, you, you know, you do everything that you can. And then when you get to your limits, you recognize what they are so that when you come back and you do it again, that limit is no longer here. Now it's, pushed out a little bit and that's how progress happens in my opinion so that's amazing amazing. um professor we could hear you talk all night um but unfortunately (laughs) we also have stuff to do and it's nearly half midnight something like that First of all, where can we uh where can we reach you online where we where is uh your academy located um so yeah yeah so anybody um anybody who wants to reach out to me i'm on instagram and um it's uh b b as in boy z as in zebra glick my last name uh bz glick i'm on uh facebook and instagram and you know i try to do a good job of staying in touch with people who try to reach out to me i don't i don't get to everybody but i do try very hard and then um i have a youtube channel i think if you search my name um, it will come up and I try to share, you know, things that I'm working on and things that people are asking about and, um, and, you know, super, super stuff. If I could say so myself. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Of amazing videos on YouTube. Um, super helpful. I mean, it's not our, I mean, I, we need to recommend these to more people in my opinion. So yeah, it doesn't you. get out enough. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, you know, anyone who is in Brooklyn, I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching out of a school and, you know, I have a couple of schools here in Brooklyn at Brooklyn BJJ and um, anyone who needs to 
get in touch with me can also reach out to me that way. But, you know, this was really great. This was such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Um, have a good day. Thank you. Have a good night. <laughs> All right. All right. See Thank you, you later. Thank you for doing this again. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye.